You are listening to the Homeland Heroes Salute, sharing stories to heal and honor our heroes. This podcast is brought to you by the Homeland Heroes Foundation and produced by Dairy Cam. This podcast sometimes deals with mature content that may not be suitable for a younger audience and could be triggering for some individuals. Discretion is advised. The views expressed by our guests and others are solely their own. No views expressed in this podcast represent any of the uniform services, the Homeland Heroes Foundation, Dairy Cam, or any other organization. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Homeland Heroes Salute. I'm your host, Alyssa, and today we have guest hosting with us, Art Briggs. Welcome back, Art, and thank you for joining us today. Before we always dive- a great day. Always, sorry, yeah. I messed that up, but always a great day to be with you, <laughs> Alyssa, on the Homeland Heroes podcast. <laughs> we always love having you here. Uh, before we dive into today's episode, um, I wanted to take a few minutes to talk with you about your experience guest hosting on the podcast. As a veteran interviewing veterans, has this experience changed the way you look at the world or has it impacted your life in any way? Oh, certainly. Every time you hear a story about a veteran uh, overcoming or, or just existing in the reality that has been handed to them, uh, there's so much resilience built into the heroes of America. Um, I've really enjoyed hearing every one of these stories. I look forward to hearing uh, Dave's story today and, Gary. and tuning in. Gary, that's what I said. Uh, <laughs> but we uh, we we get to tune in and hear these stories, and it's inspirational. Uh, when I'm having a bad day, I'm reminded of these people that are able to, uh, you know, draw from something deep within themselves or the community or their values, and it inspires me to continue to drive on. Yeah, that's something I've really enjoyed about being a part of the podcast as well. We've really uh, the veterans that we've been able to interview have all had really different lives, whether that's the way that they grew up or the way they experienced the military or how their experience was when they come home. And it's been it's been really enriching, I think, to listen to these stories and hear about the resiliency um, that they they all have. And it's inspiring, I think, for a lot of people that are listening. Um, I know it's been really expire, inspiring for me to hear these different stories, um, especially when it comes to dealing with mental health and finding that help, um, or just kind of reaching out to anyone and, and the veterans that have shared their stories, um, the impact that they have made on what they share has been really cool too. Um, so thank you for that insight, Art. It's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast and part of the Homeland Heroes team. I know you do a lot more with um, the Homeland Heroes Foundation on the back end. And we definitely appreciate that. Um, I've definitely appreciated your insight and thoughtfulness when speaking with you and the veterans we've interviewed together. So happy to have you on again today. Um, ready to dive into today's episode with Gary the Gary, how do you pronounce your last name? Yes, I'm glad you asked. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's French, so it's Dupre. The S's are silent. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. A lot of French people up here in in New England. Um, is your family from Canada at all? Uh, actually, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I'm I'm a bit of a mutt, but uh, my uh, my grandmother is uh, was from Nova Scotia. 
and um, my uh, obviously my grandfather was my great grandfather was one of those guys that used to cut holes in the ice and harvest the ice. Ooh. Those big uh, scissor tongs looking mm-hmm. thing carried on their backs. You know, have you ever seen the movie Frozen? You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, that's exactly that's where my line example. went. Yeah, that was my <laughs> well, great grandfather in the in, in Canada. Yeah, did he I, have I, a I, reindeer? <laughs> you know, I'm just gonna say he did, just to, uh, to fluff up the stuff. Yeah, my great grandfather and his uh, his reindeer, Pierre. The rain, the reindeer's name. <laughs> yeah. so it's Pierre. Yeah, oh, perfect. Of course, yeah. it's Pierre. Very French uh, reindeer name. Fantastic. <laughs> I love it. Well, tell us some more about yourself, Gary. Um, what you are a veteran of the United States military. Tell us about that. What, what was your role in the military? What branch did you serve? Sure. Uh, so I was in the United States army and, uh, I was an infantryman and I served from 1999 until, uh, 2010 when I got out. So, uh, just about 11 years. And, uh, let's see, I, I'm a native of New Hampshire. I, I've been, I, I mean, I've lived in all the New England states besides, uh, Rhode Island. Uh, but, uh, I've always, uh, claimed New Hampshire. I was born in Portsmouth and, uh, always claimed New Hampshire as my home record. Yeah. It's funny when you're from New England, you're kind of from all of it. I've, I've lived in Maine, New Hampshire and Massachusetts. And I'm like, I'm from New England. Whenever people ask when I go out different places in the country. Um, so tell us about the, what, what made you decide to serve in the army? Um, I guess uh, I joined the army when I was 17 and I went in under the uh, split off program. So what is that? So it's one of those uh, you're, you joined your junior year. Uh, after your junior year, the summer you go to uh, basic training and then you come back to your senior year. And then after your senior year, you go back for your uh, AIT, your advanced individual training. Oh, wow. Uh, so I was 17 and my, you know, uh, my father was, my father was in the Coast Guard and my, you know, my, my grandfather was in the Navy. My other grandfather was in the Air Force and my uncle was, uh, was in the Army and he was a Vietnam veteran. Mm. So I, ne- I never really, I mean, it's, it's hard for me to recall because it's so long ago, but I, I don't remember putting so much stock into the thought of joining the military, but uh, I guess I was just kind of caught off guard by a recruiter in the uh, cafeteria of the high school. <laughs> slipped me uh this like uh card to write my information down he's like kind of barked at me hey come here put your information on this card and it was just one of those like doe-eyed kids in the cafeteria and i'm like oh yeah okay you know uh, yeah. i was intrigued by learning about like the army how'd your family react to you deciding to join uh actually you know i i got a lot of positive response from my parents my father being in, being in this, he was still in the Coast Guard at the time that I was uh, thinking about joining the Army. And uh, my mother, she was just as about as excited about me joining the Army as any mother. <laughs> you know, she was a little like, uh, you know, are you sure this is what you want to do? But uh, to, to be completely honest, I was, um, I was terrible in school. I, 
I, I had terrible grades and I had, and uh, me in school didn't mix very well. So the thought of joining the army and going into something structured was, was probably a really, um, uh, probably look really good for my parents. So mm-hmm. I actually ended up going and joining when I was 17 and then coming back and, um, in my senior year, <laughs> I met with my guidance counselor and she said, uh, you know, we need to talk about you and uh, getting you to graduate. And, um, yeah, let's, uh, let's do that. I need to graduate this year. And she said that, no, no, we're not talking about this year. We're definitely going to be talking about trying to get you to graduate next year. And I was, Oh, and so I told her, I said, you know what? Um, I, I'm not going to be here for another year. So, uh, that's it. I'm done. I'm dropping out. And, uh, I dropped out of high school that day and I never went back and I came home and I told my parents, which was devastating. And, uh, I went and told my recruiter and my recruiter says, um, you can't drop out. You are under contract with the army. You have to graduate. And I said, well, I don't know what to tell you. I'm not going to graduate. And uh, so that night, he found a, uh, a course to take my GED that night. And we went up to uh, Concord and he took my GED. And um, you know, I scored well enough to pass it. And I'm pretty sure I scored pretty high in the state. And uh, and I uh, uh, got some waivers or whatnot. And I ended up uh, um, going active duty after that. Wow. Yeah, it was kind of wild. <laughs> so, so you go from basically dropping out of high school that morning to getting your GED by the, that night, essentially. Yeah, essentially. That's <laughs> and uh, I was really surprised because when I went to get my GED, there were, were people there that had been studying for like months to dig their GED. And I was a guy that showed up out of nowhere, you know, it was like one of the first times I started taking the GED on the computers and stuff, mm-hmm. three hour long test. And I just showed up and, you know, I was pretty proud of myself for actually passing the thing, you know, <laughs> I'm not, this guy that was not scholastic at the time. Gary, um, when you're talking about the process through getting the GED and all that, I'm just reminded that we're in a different era, right? So, when you're when you backpedal and think about being 17 uh kind of struggling in school what was your thoughts in joining the army how did how did that meet your needs or or be something that you wanted i know like the recruiter bamboozled you and kind of got you all doughy-eyed but and, and the recruiters are the worst i'll tell you what especially army recruiters um as I was one, but the, uh, the other side of that is like, how, how was it for you? It's 1999, uh, president Bill Clinton is in office, not even an election year yet. And, you know, desert storm has happened in the early nineties, but you really, know, it, it never passed. I never, the thought of going to war never passed across my mind. I really didn't think that that would ever have happened. Although I did know it was, uh, I was, uh, making a, you know, a commitment. And that was something that I could have possibly had to do at the time. Uh, And I was extremely patriotic uh, as a, uh, you know, an adult teenager. Um, But I didn't really join for the patriotic reasons at the time, you know. Uh, 
I, I simply didn't see my life going anywhere. Uh, I was looking at uh, not getting into college and uh, probably going to be, you know, uh, you know, a laborer laying shingles or concrete and, uh, you know, really struggling. And I knew that the, the army was going to, um, you know, give you a room and board and uh, three hots and a cot type deal. And, uh, you know, I was going to learn a skill or a job and, uh, you know, I was going to be able to support myself. So that would have really uh, was the big allure aside, you know, the, the patriotic reasons for doing it. I appreciate your candidacy in that. Like, I, I think I mentioned it in a previous podcast, like we all want to say like, Oh, I joined for patriotic reasons, but uh, a lot of us join just because uh, like, Hey, this is, I need something else. And this isn't working for me and, and I need something. So I appreciate your honesty there. Sure. Um, walk me through the conversation with mom and dad happens there. Uh, you drop out of high school, they're devastated, get your GED and your recruiter was really happy that you made that decision, I'm sure, and didn't you know, fool with him at all. He, he gave you a stern talking to, I'm sure. And then you move towards uh, basic training. What's it like being 17 uh, from New Hampshire and you're about to go away from New England for the first time ever in your life? What's some of the thoughts? Can you remember and recall what that was like? Yeah, I mean, I was one of those guys that had never been on an airplane before. And, uh, you know, Signing up, going down to the Boston Maps, taking your ASFAB, staying in the hotel, and then uh, getting a getting a uh, start date and shipping out to the South. And and um, I had really, ne- yeah, like I'd never been away from home, you know. And I was, I mean, I was all alone, and um, it's the first time you're really responsible for yourself, and uh, you know everything you do is you know, is, is a bed that you're going to have to lay in. And, uh, you know, I, I don't hear people talk enough about when you go to basic training, how terrible the waiting process is. You get down to basic training and it's like the waiting period is just as long as the training you sit in like holdover for four weeks waiting for your class to start waiting to get in and uh, you're, you're doing nothing but, you know, uh, painting rocks and uh, cutting grass and raking leaves and, you know, and getting screamed at and yelled at by people who, <laughs> I mean, different people every day. I, I, I just remember, I, I remember, you know, not even going to the bathroom for like, like two weeks, you know, things of being so nervous and, uh, and to, you know, the whole locker room mentality and, you know, how, how things were crazy people from uh, every walk of life, you know, swapping stories and experiences, uh, people hating you for no reason, you know, the different attitudes, the, the melting pot that was the barracks at the time. Uh, it was, it was pretty crazy. Yeah. So I'll be honest with you. I'm not from new England. I'm close. I'm from New York. Uh, which we claim the New York Giants, the football Giants, which uh, beat the Patriots twice, not once, but twice. Uh, but as somebody that is, uh, that is 2-0 against the Patriots in the Super Bowl, uh, I realize that New Englanders, and, and I love them, by the way, are different breed. They're obnoxious with their Boston sports. I think a lot of New England moved to, to Tampa Bay this year. Um, 
Who's but, your quarterback right now? Oh, Daniel Jones. But let's go back to uh, – well, he's up and coming. Uh, Cam, Newton, Cam, Newton's, Cam Newton's well-known. He's a super athlete. I love him. But So, anyway, New Englanders are a different breed. They drink Dunkin' Donuts instead of real coffee. Um, oh. Right? Last it's, it's really strange, uh, but you do. You go to like a melting pot of people from all over. You d- deal with Giants fans and Yankees fans. Twenty-seven pennants, I think. But um, hey, Ari, red- I want to ask you real quick: How does it feel to uh, be from New York and know that the best pizza was made in New England in New Haven, Connecticut? <laughs> I didn't even know that. I yeah. I thought the best pizza was made in like mm, I don't know New York City, but. That's not, absolutely not. I, I haven't eaten enough pizza, so maybe me and you can meet and we'll eat pizza and uh, share a beverage together. It'd be an enjoyable experience. Uh, great, I'm I'm happy to I'm happy to put up or shut up for sure. Yeah, I like it. Um, but so going back to the melting pot and humanity, never never really being out of New England. Uh, although you can get in New England, you can get any person anytime and have a, a great variety. But the large part of New England is pretty uh how do you how do you say it uh unique like even it has all races all genders all that but there's like this unique new england attitude it's so cold here that people like in the winter time you'll be like oh hey good morning and they'll grunt at you you know Uh, (laughs) which is cool uh but that's the the greeting it's a unique new englander thing i'm getting used to it um but what was it like for you to be 17 and then meet uh, a whole bunch of people that were 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, some of them probably up to 30. Uh, what was it like to experience that? And like you said, you, you're waiting before basic training. You're doing meaningless tasks that have to be done to keep you busy. And you're underneath an immense amount of pressure. That has to be unique in the evening times. No, oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's uh, it's it's tough, you know. It's a, it's a twenty four seven knot in your stomach, you know. Uh, I you know I I wasn't the most physically fit kid, you know. I you know I didn't really do much sports because of my grades and things like that. I you know I was going to struggle with everything that was physical fitness, so that was one of the biggest things that I was so concerned about. I think I procrastinated and didn't listen to the recruiter at all when it came to going out and starting to run and, you know, do push-ups and sit-ups and things like that. So I don't think I did any of that even before I went down there. And when I got down there, that's all everybody was doing was practicing doing push-ups and sit-ups. And I think I had to do 13 push-ups to get into basic training. (laughs) I remember that uh, being like nerve wracking to doing, you know, and then actually getting it to my unit and, you know, doing 80 pushups in two minutes, you know, for a PT test was basically the standard, you know, but yeah, going, getting into basic training, that was, that was a nightmare, you know, cause you knew if you didn't pass and you didn't, you didn't make the physical requirements to actually start basic training, you were going to be there and they were going to put you into some type of program to get you into better shape so that you can actually meet the standard to get into basic training. And that was just going to be a nightmare on top of, you know, being held over and waiting to start the basic training to having to wait even longer to do so. It was, you know, it was nerve wracking to say the least. You know. I'm, I'm a religious guy. So I just think of like purgatory, right? You're like, 
kind yeah. of in this waiting pattern to either be punished or, or, or go on. And uh, when you take that test, if you don't make it, like there, it's no sweat off their back. They're like, okay, you can just hang out in purgatory some more. Um, and purgatory is actually like before hell in this case, right? For army basic training in, in 1999. Um, so it's, it's, it's even worse. So you're like, just, can I please go to hell, please? Right. Hell, thank you. Yeah. I want to back up a little bit um, and talk about what kind of childhood you had and what skills or traits um, that you developed as a younger teenager or a kid prepared you for military training. Well, I, I mean, I had a I had a decent childhood. I didn't. I, I certainly didn't grow up with a lot of money, but. Um, you know, my parents who are now divorced were together throughout my whole childhood. Uh, and uh, my father, he was, you know, he was in the middle, he was in the Coast Guard. So uh, he was gone a lot. But when he was home, uh, I spent the majority of my time with him. And uh, I was, I was, you know, I was mechanically inclined. Uh, you know, I, you know, I was into working on cars and motorcycles and things like that. But, the, you know, I'd much rather have done things that hands on, you know, the, than the, to have done any type of writing or reading, you know, when I was growing up. And uh, I, I learned I, I think I learned a lot from my dad as far, as far as that goes. You know, my father kind of instilled the patriotism in me when at a young age, uh, him being in the service and. Uh, my father has, you know, uh, has a great personality and great sense of humor. So, you know, he's, he's never really, you know, had a serious tone about him when he, you know, he was always looking to uh, crack a joke or you know, have a good time. And uh, I admired that about him. Did he ever talk to you or have conversations with you about his service? Uh, all the time being in the Coast Guard, my father was, uh, at sea a lot and, uh, you know, they did, uh, you know, they were always in, uh, Haiti or, um, Gitmo or, you know, the Key West, you know, Bermuda, things like that. And they were always, uh, doing drug busts and, uh, checking boats and, and things like that. So I always got to hear some stories when he came back about uh, what he had done and which really sounded very exciting to me. And to, <laughs> he always told me how much he hated doing it because he would, you know, have to leave the three months at a crack and come back for only a month. And uh, he ended up hating having to leave, which I always wondered why he hated it so much. It seemed like so, something so exciting to me. And of course I didn't understand until I got a lot older. Wow. That's incredible. So I just want to make mention that the Coast Guard gets a lot of shade from the other services uh, because they are the Coast Guard and we're all envious of them to some degree. Uh, <laughs> but when you talk about the Coast Guard, these men and women are out there every day, three months on, three months off, three months on, three months off. Back then it sounds like three and one, three and one. And they are like, literally getting shot at they're finding submersible uh vehicles that have one million dollars one million dollars of cocaine or narcotics that are coming to our cities and causing overdoses and drug addiction like wow and and then human trafficking they're stopping human trafficking it's unbelievable uh, if you ever if, he did that portion of the sea duty he did that for 18 years which is really um 
which is uh, unusual. Usually you don't end up doing it for that long. People do it for four years, five years, six years, a long time. He did it for 18 years before he actually got a land station and, uh, you know, promoted, you know, up to a chief and had his own staff and things like that. So it's, it's, it's actually quite something that he did it for that long. And, uh, you know, he didn't complain that much about it <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Would the Coast Guard be considered um, kind of the first defense, at least via sea, when it comes to protecting the U.S.? Well, they, they were back in back in the day. They were Department of Transportation because from and correct me if I'm wrong, my facts might be a little off. But as far as I know, uh, that they were the Department of Transportation because they used to go into foreign waters. And uh, if you were Department of Transportation, you could. Um, go into foreign waters without be, being an act of war. Uh, and uh, that after 9-11, they got transferred over to uh, the Department of Homeland Security, I believe. Oh, okay. But uh, yeah, so they're kind of right there with uh, being like the first line and whatnot. Yeah, you're right. At one point, they were uh, Department of Defense. They're also Department of Transportation. Now they're Department of Homeland Security, and uh, that's why they run into funding issues when the government shuts down. Because while the Department of Defense continues to operate on a contingency plan that's authorized by Congress, the the U.S. Coast Guard is under Homeland Security, and that's a different set of funding. So they're not protected underneath that. Um, also, uh, they are a maritime patrol unit, meaning they have a police officer type enforcement agency. So that international waters, they have the ability um, to have some certain law enforcement possibilities. So that's a good question, Alyssa. Yeah, I think that's that's interesting. We. Um and I'm wondering, actually, if, if we can kind of dive into some of the history um, in regards to military, if either of you know anything about it. But um, it's something that before I started working with veterans, I didn't realize. I kind of thought, you know, if you're part of the military, you're in this same giant pot. Um, and that's not the case. So um, <clears throat> I know National Guard is actually ran by um, the state the states so they they go through state funding and the governors of the states are the ones that can enact them um when we deal with different disasters throughout the country whether it be the flooding that we see after hurricanes in the south or the wildfires we're seeing um again in the california oregon washington states um can either of you talk about that a little bit kind of a i'm not i can't figure out the right word that I want to use, but the, I guess the hierarchy of the military branches that we have in the U.S. in regards to like, who, like, um, so we have the National Guard, we have the Coast Guard, we have the Army, the Marines, the Air Force, the Army, Marines, Air Force, Space Force, um, the reserves under those ones. Am I missing any? So, so you're, you're getting them. So you have the the, the Army, uh, the Marine Corps, the Navy, the Coast Guard, and the Air Force. The Air Force just celebrated their birthday. And uh, one of my friends, actually my brother-in-law, uh, said, 
it wasn't the birth of the Air Force. It was their independence from the Army because the Army Air Corps existed prior to that. So there is just a plethora of military history. Your Marines will tell you about Tongue Tavern in 1775 on October. Oh, Lord, Marines don't kill me 10th or 11th or something like that. Yeah. And they... um, well, that was right off the top of my head. They'll tell you, you know, Chesty Polar and all of the battles. And then the army will tell you that they're the oldest branch. They were formed on July 12th, 1775. It's still and, the record for the largest amphibious battle ever. Yeah. And if you really want to take off a Marine, you just ask him like, Hey, what was the largest amphibious battle ever fought? And we all know that was Normandy on D-Day, and then you ask the next question, how many Marines were there? And Marines are world famous for being amphibious war fighters. And so at the largest and most well-known amphibious battle in the history of all of war, there was not one Marine there. And uh, that's a sore subject, so don't bring it up to Marines. uh, Love all my Marines, you know, I served with many of them. Still have many Marine friends. We like to bust each other's balls all the time about that stuff. Uh, that's that's one that always gets them, you know. <laughs> First thing out of the mouth is Iwo Jima. But. That's hard. So <laughs> they'll be like, you know, you know what Army stands for? And be like, yes, I do. Ain't ready for the Marines yet. And then we'll, and then we'll be like, do you know the Marine Corps is the Department of the Navy? And they'll be like, yeah, the men's department. And it's like, oh, my gosh. The Navy's kind of like their Uber, you know? The Navy is the Uber oh. for the Marine Corps. Yep. They can't even get to their wars. They need to ride. They are the smallest branch by far. And uh, they do pride themselves on being an amphibious branch. And they're actually getting back to that now in the current day and age. So yeah, there's a, there's a ton. And then the Coast Guard has its own history. Uh, I work with submariners now, which is a, a completely different thing. And that's a whole other branch of the Navy. And these people are so incredible, like the Coast Guard. They're always out to sea. Like one submarine has a golden blue crew. So the submarine will come in, they'll switch crews and they'll go out. And then they'll come back, switch crews and go out. So you're, you're like constantly at sea, submerged, and submarines are, are always at war when they're deployed. Like yeah. in 1999, they were at war. In 2020, they are at war. They're, they're doing incredible things that can't be mentioned. They, the, the whole, their whole identity is secret. And they never get any credit. People are just like, oh, yeah, submariners, that must be weird or hard. And it's like, man, what they do for our nation is unbelievable, too. So all the subbies out there, man, you guys are amazing heroes, and we appreciate you. Imagine being stuck in a submarine like that. Oh, my God. But their mission, what they do for our nation is uh, unparalleled. It's, it's unreal. I actually know a few, and you're absolutely right. Thank you for that insight. I, it's it's interesting because, like I said, it, it just feels like if someone's part of the military, they're kind of lumped in to this one box. Um, but it's that's not the case. It's there's a lot of different factors when it comes to every part of the military. Um, 
And I think that that's one of the benefits of this podcast is we get to talk to a lot of different people with different backgrounds and learn more about um, our current military history, which I think is just as important as learning about World War One and World War Two and all the other things that we've been involved with. Um, I think that is a good time to stop for today, though. So thank you for joining us for the first part of Gary's story. For part two, tune into the next episode of the Homeland Heroes Salute. This podcast is brought to you by the Homeland Heroes Foundation, an organization dedicated to the reacclimation support of active duty service members, veterans, and their families in their time of need. To learn more, visit homelandheroesfoundation.org. Thank you to our production team at DairyCam, creating connection through story for a better world. Learn more by visiting dairycam.org. Thank you for listening and make sure you subscribe to the Homeland Harris Salute wherever you listen to podcasts.